Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here this morning and for praying for me not only as I prepare for this message, but also over these past several weeks in which I was sick. And I, I really do appreciate all your love and concern for Barb and I, and especially for your prayers. Um, I'm really humbled. Um, my uh, son, Zachary, was here this past week, and the question came up in our family, because it's been extended a month, this message, would it be that much longer? Ah, well, you don't have to worry. That, that isn't the case. Uh, even this morning, I was going through trying to eliminate. It's, it, there's so much that could be said, but I tried to get it down to where it's reasonable. So I want to begin by asking you a rather simple question, and I want you to be honest with yourself. So here's the question. Are you an ambitious person? Think about your life. Are you an ambitious person? I would imagine that for most of you, the answer to this question would be yes, simply because we all tend to think of ourselves as rather industrious. But let me take this question one step further and have you rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being not ambitious at all and 10 being very, very ambitious. But before you do that, let me define ambitious for you. Definition. Having a desire to achieve a sought-out goal or accomplishment, one who has aspirations to be diligent, one who is known as a go-getter, a hard driver in reaching a particular achievement. So where do you find yourself on a scale of 1 to 10? I want you to rate yourself again now using a different definition of ambitious. Having a strong and persistent desire for personal success, for power, for status, for achievement, for wealth, for distinguished honor, and for recognized fame. Where would you rate yourself now? The point of this exercise is that you, as you look at varying definitions, you will see there are two specific ways of being an ambitious person. And I think the Bible is very clear about these two definitions as well. The first is what I would call a good or a godly ambition. And one I believe that as Christians we should all strive for. What are some of the possible attributes of people who are ambitious in a godly way? Well, they're diligent. As 1 Corinthians 10.31, they work for the glory of God. They're productive. They're not slothful, as warned in Proverbs. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the slugger desireth and have nothing. They're not quitters. They persevere. They don't give up. They don't grow weary in well-doing. They set goals for themselves. Proverbs 21, the plans of the diligent lead to plenty, but everyone that is hasty only to want. They organize their time, even their free or their leisure time. They redeem the time God has given them. 
and they're willing to set aside their own desires and help others. They truly take the commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself. And they seek to be a servant for the Lord, which we'll discuss here in Mark 10, 44. Yet as I mentioned, there is a second definition that the Bible sets out, which is completely contrary to godly ambition. One is which I would summarize selfish ambition. What is the difference between the two? One clear distinction is motive. The motive for pursuing godly ambition is totally opposite that of pursuing selfish ambition. And the scriptures are very clear in saying that selfish ambition is not what Christians are called to pursue. For example, in Philippians 2.3, the Apostle Paul commands believers to let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. The ESV puts it this way, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If you dig a little deeper into the phrase selfish ambition, in the Greek it's defined as erythiai, or carnal ambition, which means faction, strife, contention, acting for one's own gain, regardless of the discord or strife it causes, placing self-interest ahead of what the Lord declares right or what is good for others. If we're honest, in our sinful old nature, probably each of us would desire to be great and prestigious due to pride. Yet as creatures, new creatures in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to humility and to see others as more significant than ourselves. In other words, we're to pursue godly ambition and not selfish ambition. That's what today's passage is all about. As we see Christ himself pointing out this godly desire, this godly ambition that we should strive for and not the selfish ambition we see so often demonstrated in the world today. So I called this message the sin of selfish ambition. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture here in Mark. Lord, we thank you for your commandments, your word, the truth that it holds. And I thank you for speaking to me over these last several weeks on my own ambition. Thank you for each one here this morning. I pray that you would really work in each of their hearts. May Christ be magnified, Lord. We just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I broke these 14 verses up into three sections. The first is verses 32 through 34. So follow along as I read. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto them or him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall contemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and they shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. I call section one the startling prediction. 
As we begin here in verse 32, we immediately see that the destination for Christ and his disciples was Jerusalem. It would be easier for me to just to skip right into verses 33 and 34 regarding what Christ tells his disciples. But I think there are three points worth noting in verse 32 that we may have first failed to see. First, Jesus went before them. Well, the ESV puts it this way, Jesus was walking ahead of them. If you really stop and think about it, this was the reality of the disciples' lives with Christ as their teacher. Two words summarize it well. Follow me. Matthew 4.19 Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. John 8.12 I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Isn't this the greatest demonstration of the life we as Christians are to live today? To follow him? Yet are we really following Christ and letting him lead? Or are we instead blazing our own trail and asking him to bless our steps along the way? Secondly, the disciples were amazed. Matthew Henry said this, They admired to see with what cheerfulness Christ went on, though he knew he was going to suffer and die. This will be Christ's final journey to Jerusalem. And although he had made the trip many times, this journey would be different. And the disciples were amazed at his courage to face the suffering that lay ahead of him. We too should be amazed at the courage it took to walk straight towards his fate at Calvary, especially in light of our own cowardly responses at times when we are negligent in standing up for Christ. Thirdly, the disciples were afraid. No doubt this was a difficult experience for each of the disciples. And whether they remembered Christ's words back in Mark 8.34, I don't know. Christ said, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this was shortly about to come true for these men. Yet I think they're to be commended for continuing to follow Christ, even though they were fearful and their imaginations are probably running wild with the possible scenarios that lay ahead. It's difficult to tell which would be worse, knowing all the details of the horror or not knowing anything. Yet for seeing how the human imagination can often project things that are way off course, it seems Christ thought it best to prepare his men for what would actually take place and therefore took them aside to once again describe in verses 33 and 34 everything he would encounter. This is actually the third time Christ has solemnly warned his disciples about what's going to happen. For both in Mark 8 and 9, he foretold these events, and he tells them again, Behold, we go to Jerusalem. This was the time, and this was the place where his death would occur. Secondly, they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark where Christ reveals that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. As one commentator pointed out, delivery to the Gentiles reveals that Jesus will be held in contempt by his own countrymen. For the Gentiles are the last people to whom the Messiah of the people of God should be handed over. Thirdly, they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. Clearly, Christ suffered the most terrible emotional humiliation and physical torture anyone could experience in his death on the cross. 
And yet, we, mu- we must remember it was done out of love for us. Lastly, the third day, you shall rise again. What wonderful words that must have been to the disciples, but did they really understand them? I don't think so. However, for us who are believers, we should completely understand this truth. For these are the wonderful words that give us hope as we think of victory over death. Now as I studied this, one thought really came to my mind. I don't know what you think of when you think of the crucifixion of Christ. Perhaps you visualize his death when we sing great hymns of the faith like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Or maybe the crucifixion becomes vivid when you participate in the Lord's Supper here at church. Possibly when you see a picture of a cross, it reminds you of our Savior hanging and the sorrow and suffering he endured. Or perhaps you have an image in your mind of the crowds at the foot of the cross, some mocking, some shouting in anger, some raising their fist as he hung there suffering in pain. While the pain must have been unbelievable, what I want to focus on a bit today is the emotional side of his death, that of the mocking Christ had to endure. We are so prone to consider the physical suffering, yet the ongoing mocking must have been pretty severe. How was he mocked? They mocked his kingship, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! In the midst of the Roman trial, Pilate offered Barabbas and Jesus to the crowd and asked them to choose one to be released. With a frenzied cry, they chanted, Release for us Barabbas! Their choice declared Jesus not a king at all, but worse than a criminal, worse than an insurrectionist and a murderer. Secondly, they mocked his power. Let him save himself. During his earthly ministry, Christ had publicly demonstrated his miraculous power time and time again. The people had seen it, acknowledged it, and even understood the implications of it as his miracles were obvious, they are credible, they're unmistakable. Even Christ's enemies acknowledged their authenticity. Yet sweeping aside this demonstrated truth of his ministry, the sightseers at the foot of the cross wagged their heads and said, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from that cross. Even the rulers of the Jews added their scorn and said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. They mocked his deity. In Matthew 26, Caiaphas, the high priest, commanded Jesus, You tell us. You tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus answered, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. How did Caiaphas react to this affirmation? Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we need to have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. 
And they mocked his trust in his father, saying he trusts in God. At the cross, these religious leaders taunted him. Some shouted, he trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Mockery. It's so very painful. To mock means to laugh at in a scornful or contemptuous manner or to make fun of someone in a nasty, mean, and unkind way. It's not just an act of innocent fun between friends, but is a direct insult. In essence, puts someone down very intentionally. I would guess that for many of you, if not all of you, you too have at some point in your life been the recipient of mockery. Such words hurt, and they hurt a lot. And there's no doubt we live in an age of mockery, maybe more so than ever. As one author said, mockery is the currency of our time, and it demeans and debases our entire culture. The Bible speaks of the sin of mockery, often called scorning or scoffing, and the significance of it, especially those who make a mock at sin. Proverbs 14.9, fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there is favor. And don't we see this today? All around us, people flaunting openly and outwardly all kinds of sin. The Bible speaks in Proverbs of the scorner being proud and haughty. And again in Proverbs 22, how the scorner brings contention and strife. God's word also speaks of those who are in the camp of those mocking others. Psalms 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, those that mock. And that is often when mocking takes place, when there's a crowd and tongues are lashing out all kinds of poison. Simply put, mocking is a work of the flesh. And yet how often we fail in this area of what we say about someone else. We're commanded to love our neighbors ourselves. So if we truly love a neighbor, how can we possibly mock them? Yet all too often we fall into this terrible sin. What the Lord really convicted me of as I studied was, Brad, if you mock someone, especially in a group, Aren't you not, are you not in a spiritual sense joining the mockers at the foot of the cross? Are you really any different than they? For me, and hopefully for you, in, in light of the mocking Christ endured, the challenge is to decide whether we identify with Christ on the cross or with his mockers and tormentors. Hopefully your choice is to identify with Christ and see mocking for the sin that it really is. Section 2, verses 35 through 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on the right hand and the other on the left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of? 
and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. I call this second section the selfish ambition. As we move through these verses, I see three particular happenings. The first, the desire. Verses 35 through 37. Despite the continual predictions from Christ of the suffering that lay ahead, the disciples seemingly still thought that when Christ got to Jerusalem, he would establish a political kingdom. So much so that we see here in verse 35 that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Christ with a particular desire or request. We know from back in Mark 9 that Phil preached on, the disciples must have often spoke among themselves who would be the greatest among them. And in this passage, apparently, James and John thought they would be the select two. So in verse 35, they say to Christ, Master, teacher, grant to us this request. Christ responded to them in verse 36 by asking, What is it? To which we learn in verse 37 that the question at hand was, May one of us sit at thy right hand, or the ultimate place of honor among Christ, and the other of us sit on the left hand, which was considered the second highest place of honor? What a prideful request that definitely has selfish ambition written all over it. Which leads to the discussion, verses 38 and 39a. Christ begins his discussion with these two men by asking a serious question. Are you able to drink from the same cup that I will and endure the same baptism? In other words, do you understand the gravity of the question you're asking? Are you willing to undergo the shame and reproach of the cross following the resurrection? Are you willing to suffer and even die for your faith? If you look this up in the Greek, the phrase, the cup, and the baptism the cup refers to Christ's coming sufferings. And the word baptism actually refers to being overwhelmed by the disaster or danger at hand. Similar to Psalm 69 too, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overwhelm me. And then their answer in verse 39a. Affirmative. We can. That just amazes me. While they had yet to comprehend all that they would eventually face, they readily agreed they could endure it. No doubt, again, pride and selfish ambition was the thrust of their answer. Which leads me to the, the decree in verses 39b and 40. How did Christ answer? You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. And that decree did come true. Well, that's exactly what happens as Acts 12 tells us that James was the first apostle to be martyred in death and John himself would be tortured and experience great persecution for his faith only to be later exiled to the barren isle of Patmos for years. Notice Christ goes on to say in verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared, which is basically saying that these positions they desired would certainly not be rewarded due to selfish ambition, but would be filled according to the sovereign will of the God. 
Selfish ambition. In light of the passage, um, where God really took me was Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem better than themselves. The question I have for you to consider is, do you esteem others better than yourself? Or are you one who deep down inside is always putting your own selfish interest ahead of that? It's easy to know. I ask you to rate your own ambition when we began, but you could take that one step further and actually have someone in your family or outside your family honestly give you some feedback. Just ask them, am I demonstrating selfish ambition? What is selfish ambition? I want to give you some illustrations. One commentator said a good illustration is this. A politician who runs for office ambitiously courts popular opinion and competitively positions himself to win the race against any rival. He cares only about himself and is driven by selfish ambition. In fact, he resents the success of others and works to demonstrate his own superiority even, though mock, even through mockery of his opponents. And for sure, in politics, we see this all the time. Selfish ambition, and it's ugly. But maybe you aren't into politics. You like sports. So let me ask you, what does selfish ambition look like on a sports team? It looks like players who can't get along, who can't work together as a team. It looks like ball hogging and a focus on one's own personal stat line. It looks like unfair demands and a lack of concern for the good of the team. It's also ugly and no fun to watch at all. Or what about selfish ambition at work? Who deserves the credit? I do, of course. I made that happen. I achieved that goal. It was me. It was me. It was all me. But then there's a mistake, an error. Oh no. It wasn't my fault. He told me to do it. I would have never done it that way. Do you use people as a scapegoat? These situations in the workplace are also very ugly. Politics, sports, employment. Now imagine selfish ambition in the church. What does that look like? People forming cliques, lobbying for their own agendas, people gossiping, people mocking one another. Possibly leadership lording it over the assembly or putting programs over people. Measuring church growth in numbers over church growth in spirituality and building up the body. It happens in churches all the time. It's a real heartache and it's ugly. Or what about your home? Are you esteeming one another better than yourself? Or is there conflict in your home because of selfish ambition among certain family members? In fact, it can be so subtle... I would say that you could even be blinded when the sin of selfish ambition is in your life. You, you can't see this, the speck, let alone the log. That's when you need to ask someone else, do you see selfish ambition in my life? 
Children, you can even face the sin of selfish ambition at a very early age. I read this story of a little boy sweeping the front porch before a guest arrived. I'm going to get this front porch so clean and so spotless that when people show up at our house, they're going to say, wow, this is the cleanest front porch I have ever seen. And then the question of selfish ambition is there and the boys asking or hoping it will be asked. Who cleaned this porch? I did. Now you may say that's silly. But that's the way most people think. Both children and adults. The sin of selfish ambition is ugly in every circumstance of life. Do you demonstrate selfish ambition? May God rid our lives of that. And instead, may we do all things out of godly ambition. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory and not ourselves. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And we bring glory to God by serving. And that's our final section. So verses 41 through 45. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest or the first shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I call this last section the servant's submission. No doubt that Christ used the request of James and John as a teaching moment for all his disciples, revealing the importance of submission needed as a servant of Christ. Notice first the resentment. Verse 41, Clearly the other disciples were not pleased when they heard the petition made by James and John. And it's true. We may have responded exactly the same way. However, if we did, this kind of resentment would not be pleasing to the Lord at all. The reaction of, well, who do they think they are? Would be motivated by the same pride that James and John had demonstrated in their request. In essence, they were thinking to themselves, well, we didn't ask first. We should have because then we would have got the box seats in the future kingdom. Secondly, notice the reflection. Christ then took the opportunity to reflect on how the Jewish leaders were indeed guilty of the same abuses of authority by exercising lordship over the people and how power and force and selfish ambition were wrongfully used instead of love and humility. And then thirdly, the requirements in verses 33 and 43 and 44. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister or servant. And whosoever you will be the chiefest or first shall be servant of all. 
As I said earlier, a few weeks, Phil preached on Mark 9 concerning what, what makes a great person. Christ once again confirms here to his disciples that being great means being a servant to all. Status, money, popularity are not prerequisites for being great. It's not, it's not looking in a mirror and saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the greatest of them all? No. No, just the opposite. For it is the humility and humble service that are the prerequisites as displayed by Christ's own ministry. As I thought about this, I was reminded that in most companies there are CEOs, chief executive officers. And there are COOs, chief operating officers. And there are CFOs, chief financial officers. But in reality, the position that we should try to hold in any field we may find ourselves is CSO, chief serving officer. Do we seek to serve? That's the real question. And we find the answer in Christ, for that is what Christ exemplified for us in verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered, or served unto, but to minister, serve, and give his life a ransom for many. He was the ransom. For it is Christ who stands in the place of guilty sinners and offers himself as a substitution of atonement. Philippians 2.9 For Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashions of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. As we conclude today, I'll end with the same question I began with. Are you pursuing selfish ambition or godly ambition? That's a really thought-provoking question. One you can ask yourself every day. I trust it's godly ambition, but I wanted to give you some closing applications to see instead if you're traveling down this road of the sin of selfish ambition. You love to take the credit. Ask yourself, even in your own home, you have a hard time admitting fault. You feel entitled to success. Again, it's, it's me. I deserve it. You make comparisons with others. It's so easy to do. You crave the approval of man. Just like this little boy sweeping the porch, hoping the question will be asked, who cleaned the porch? You use people even to the point of mockery. You demonstrate a lack of love for others. That's the real test. You are building monuments of glory only to yourself. If Christ was our example and was willing to serve, how much more should we? May our eyes be open to the truth of God's word here this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. It's found in your word, and Lord, help us to really examine our hearts. Pride is ugly. 
and it can get in our lives in a way we don't even understand. And then that selfish ambition raises its ugly head to pump us up. Lord, help us instead and see Christ, to constantly focus on Christ and how he served, and may we also serve, realizing that that is the key. So thank you again, in Christ's name, amen.